listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week, 28th of August to September 1. Oh, got that out. Uh, this week we spoke about horses and specifically pleasure mounting. <laughs> Yes, it's exactly what it sounds like. No, it isn't. And we chatted to Bugman Simon Hinckley about the stick creature, Lord. the Lord Howe stick. Island stick creature. It's is an it? insect. Insect. Stick creature. Also known as a land lobster. A land lobster. Uh, we also spoke to Patricia Cornelius, uh, the playwright, about her upcoming work, Big Heart. It's on at Theatre Works. And also we had a chat about um, pets that... Um, that we found in nature and decided <laughs> things that we decided to keep as a pet. Well, I swear this was a better week than it sounds. <laughs> we, we, we also spoke to a summer, a summer shark, a summer, a summer, a summer, about his film Ali's Wedding, which was very good, and Shashi Tharoor about his book Inglorious Empire: What the British Did to India. <laughs> Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You are listening to Breakfasters with Sarah Jeff and Geraldine here on Triple R. Uh, yesterday, Kath, my partner, um, yes. she went off to a – she had a horse show to oh. go to. Oh. Is that where you look at horses or you ride horses? She was – people were looking at horses, but and um, but she was one of the people with the horse to look at. Oh, really? Yeah. What's so special about her horse? Yeah. Uh, no, as in, you know, you get dressed up and prance around. Oh, that, that, oh, that of, kind of horse. Yeah. Right. <laughs> get dressed up and prance around. Well, yeah, it's, that's what it is. Uh, unfortunately, I, I couldn't make it. I was I was planning to go after after I'd finished breakfast, but she was like, it's, it's all going to be over by the time you get here. Plus, there's no bacon sandwiches, so there's no point in coming. I went, okay, I'll stay at home. Uh, so, but her, she took her horse, um, Victor. And they won a couple of ribbons. Yeah. Won a few well, ribbons. I saw her post a picture of a ribbon. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So she got third place in Smartest on Parade. What's that even mean? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Mate, and that is like, a, there are like five, I think maybe five different categories and none of them make sense. Well, smartest on Parade. Is smartest mean, on Parade. Does that mean like the way it looks? Well, yeah, you you're looking very smart. <laughs> or, or it's got like or it's, it's smart. smart as in yeah, it's or clever. it's um, you know, yeah. Well, basically, it's I think it's just the award for the cleanest and best looking horse and rider. So mm-hmm. they have to they're all, they have to dress up in their the normal attire. Jodhpurs, yeah, jodhpurs, <laughs> suit, whatever, jacket. It's all you know, and then um, and they ride out, and then um, they have to go around in a circle, and the um, the judges look, and they 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 check like under the saddle to see if it's clean under oh. there for dirt and stuff. So Jeez. yeah, they just check no it. one's checking under my saddle. <laughs> And then, and they check the riders' boots, make sure there's no mud on it and stuff. Wow! So that's what has that to be the first terrible. event. No, what? Just be around by someone checking to see whether you cleaned your shoes. Like being in the military. Yeah. Well, maybe that's where it started. Anyway, they go, <laughs> "You're looking very smart," and they got um, third place for that. So well done, good job. Um, and that has to be first because everything's you know, very clean under Kath's saddle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop saying that. Well, it gets better. <laughs> 
then some then there's like the lead exhibit so they have to get on the horse and you know take it around lead it oh and then there's the ha- there's <laughs> another one where they have to ride it they actually get on and ride around and go i don't know that you know Just, anyway so they have to jump anything or no they just they're the just prance. prancing around <laughs> Have they have to prance backwards? Oh no! I think I think maybe they have to like canter and things like that. Oh, you're right. Um, but then, but here's um, here are the other two that are pretty pretty great. Um, the next award was they that they got a ribbon for was um, Mount Most Suitable. What? Mount Most Suitable. Mm. What's that? I don't know. <laughs> I could not work it out. Maybe just like it's not too big make, and it's not oh, too you, small. You, mount, you mounted that yeah. suitably, yeah. Mount most suitable. That is a, that were, is a suitable. If you were really big and you were like a little pony, they'd say that's not a suitable horse for you. Maybe. Uh, really? Is that <laughs> you, I was <laughs> putting it out there. I thought it was like know. you know you don't leapfrog onto your horse. You you get oh, on. Yeah, 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 that would be unsuitable. It would be unsuitable. Ah. Imagine you just got an award for being suitable in life. <laughs> Jeff, that was a... Imagine if you got being judged being unsuitable. News read most suitable. I don't know, award these every day Most suitable, yeah. I love that. Most suitable. But then there's also the next award was the pleasure mount. (laughs) (laughs) These are real things. No, it's not. It is. (laughs) It's so real. (laughs) And I don't know. What do you mean? <laughs> what, do, what, what are you talking like, about? <laughs> how do you score the um, pleasure mount? Pleasure mount. I don't I mean, know. How do you score pleasure mount? <laughs> Sorry. What? Yeah, I have to give us some more information. I wish I could. <laughs> I don't. How did Kath go with the pleasure mount? <laughs> <laughs> she. I think she got fourth. <laughs> to breakfast is here on Triple R with Jeff, Geraldine and Sarah. Big Heart is a play coming up at Theatreworks in St Kilda running from the 6th to the 24th of September. It's directed by Susie D and it's written by Patricia Cornelius who is joining us now in the Triple R studio. Welcome to Breakfasters. Hi. Good to be here. It's good to have you here. The publicity for Big Heart describes it as a drama in which an Australian woman adopts five children, each from different continents. It sounds like an allegory, almost like a morality play. Is that accurate? Yeah, it is really. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, my biggest fear about it, in a way, is that it's an ideas play, and um, to whether I've been able to transcend the, the kind of uh, the investigation of it in a, in a theatrical enough way um, is yet to be seen, but hopefully it is an, an enga- engages with a whole lot of ideas about us as a multicultural society and uses the the allegory, if you like, or metaphor of um, international adoption to kind of do that to to um, make that make that investigation. Hey, so, is there an is there a narrative, um, a, a sort of realist narrative, running through it as well? Um, 
They're only in the sense that it is about it covers from um, childhood to through adolescence, like the three acts: childhood, adolescence, ad- adulthood. And um, so it looks at um, various moments within the lives of these children that are adopted by this very wealthy woman, and hopefully those incidences are clearly about growing up, but also about the kind of pivotal things in in terms of being in this country and, and what you experience when you're other. Oh, you say in the press release, or someone says in the press release, to play which risks treading on toes, which might offend, which says unflattering stuff about us. What's the offensive stuff? I think it's really reflected in, in my, my field of the arts. In uh, it, It's sort of gobsmacking how white we are mm. and how... Uh, we, 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 our stages are white and, in fact, our drama schools are white and will continue to be mostly white, um, because, especially because it becomes more and more expensive to, to attend them. And uh, so there's a bias. There's also a class bias within, the, within the, the theatre. It's actually very hard to find people, not necessarily that are working class, and, but, but even understand the sound of working class. Mm. And so that you, you get... <laughs> It's really peculiar, toffee-voiced people. They're kind of getting down. And you think, oh, my God. <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, See, so, uh, yeah, it, it's uh, about us in the sense that um, of that we believe we're multicultural. We are multicultural. We're incredibly mixed. We have been for a bloody long time. And yet there is a kind of weird denial of it. So uh, people get sensitive about these things. I don't like to, you to criticise your own country with another bug there is one of the reasons why I think there, there is a kind of neglect of Australians writing for the theatre here, that we import stuff and um, what's, what's that about, that you don't actually want to hear the voices that are critical of you. Well, your work has often challenged a lot of those things that you were just talking about, so whether it's the kind of classism in theatre uh, or, in, or giving a voice to working class people. have you? Has there been any more of an acceptance of that kind of work in theatre? Has it changed over your career or you, do you still feel like you're kind of fighting the good fight? Uh, I think... The, the days of, like, Melbourne Workers Theatre, which was a company that was around for 25 years and, and I, I was part of the founding of that company, that was so vibrant in a, in a sense, but it took a really bloody long time for the theatre industry to kind of acknowledge that it was of any worth. And so you, you become... Uh, you're caught in the kind of didactic field, where you're you're the propagandists, and um, and I, I got nothing against a bit of good propaganda. <laughs> you know, there there is a sort of weird denial that that, that other theatre is didactic, isn't didactic. Well, it bloody is, and it has a it has a message to tell. And so, you, as soon as you kind of uh, try to talk about it in a more progressive way, all of a sudden you get closed down as if, as if you're kind of breaking some wonderful artistic rule. And actually it, it's about not wanting to hear that, that side and uh, people get all toey. But I, I, I do, be, I'm worried about the theatre, how in terms of class, it's sort of like um, it, it has got worse, I think. Yeah, right. Especially with the cuts to the funding, that was an absolute 
bastard of a thing. But, and and it, some of the money comes back, but it didn't necessarily come back to the very sector that it was aimed at, and that was the independent sector. And it's the independent sector that will have those loose and wild voices and much more about class than any other, and just political. And so if you close those doors and make it harder for that sector then where, where, where's the agitation going to come? And agitation's not just political. It, agitation is also creative. So you go, where, where are the, the things that thrill you in the theatre because someone dares to, to go there, someone dares to say, what a shit of a country we live in, <laughs> for example. Uh, you're an overtly political writer, as, as you've been talking about there. There's something I've always wanted to ask you. Where did you learn your politics? What was the context that um, you became politically um, active and politically aware? Was it a particular campaign or a particular it's movement? such an old lefty bloody question. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it totally is. Oh I see if I come from the right way. Where did I get dragged up? Totally is. exactly that. Have I got the right credentials? It's mine. Oh, God, I hope I pass. I'm sure I'm not gonna. <laughs> I, think I was introduced to, uh, to politics through feminism, and then uh, and I, that, I found it thrilling. I mean, I was so slow, and I think that's coming from a, a, a family and a kind of cultural background and political background that was pretty bloody backward, and so. You, for a long time, you kind of have to deal with who you are. You don't have a clue. And but feminism was just fabulous for me, and I kind of had a real understand a foot on the in the on the ground. I kind of understood how, that it wasn't all about me. When you said you were really slow, what do you? How slow? Like how old were you <laughs> when you were? That's <laughs> another. Slow. I can't remember. I'm too old now. <laughs> but in my twenties, yeah, right. Yeah, look, and not. I think I was. Oh no, I'm just. I think I'm the same. I was. Yeah, grew up in a very conservative kind of family. It wasn't until yeah, my probably late twenties that I kind of started questioning everything through through feminism. Yeah, Yeah. but then then, you know, feminism is fabulous. But there's sort of. it's about that match with a kind of socialist perspective. And so as soon as I kind of learn about class politics, mm. that even grounded me much more, actually. I kind of understood the world um, in a broader sense. And that was through mostly Trotsky. Oh. Yeah, very good. <laughs> Jeff, do you get the tick of approval? Oh, yes. <laughs> um, to go back to, to, to Big Heart, it strikes me that this... One way of talking about that theme would be in terms of Australian identity, which sort of has been a preoccupation of Australian theatre and Australian culture for a long time. Is that is there such a thing as an Australian identity? Is, is, that, is that something worth pursuing or is it an innately bogus kind of preoccupation? Because I feel like it's something that people in the theatre have just talk about all the time. Do, do you? All right. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of feel like, unlike you, I feel like it's not talked about enough. Right. I sort of feel like most of the theatre I see does not question us or question our our identity whatsoever. In fact, I feel like we're often so cap in hand to a kind of English or American tradition that we um, ignore that that we might... uh, have something else to say or, or, and it, it's not like a, it, um, 
I don't think we, I'm not talking about nationalism. I'm not talking about uh, a small-minded looking in on ourselves and 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 congratulating ourselves, or, or even you know that nonsense about our amazing irreverence. <laughs> and, but it, it's more. I think it's still a global way. But but in some ways, you've got to kind of be able to actively look at yourself and mm. actively analyse who you are. And the arts does that. Not, well, it does not do that enough. Um, it, it's much more about relationships, about kind of right. understanding how the breakdown of a marriage or, or dealing with um, grief or, you know, all, and all those things, are, they can be fabulous, really fabulous, but you get a bit tired of them, really. Um, as I said when I started, this is plays being directed by Susie D. You've been collaborating together for a long time. What's the secret for um, keeping a partnership fresh during such a long re- re- relationship? <laughs> I mean, was it 30 years? Is that, is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you still fight about things? Oh, or? yeah, yeah. I was, it, but I think that's part of the freshness. <laughs> is that we're, uh, there is no, there's nothing that I feel... Um, I can't say, and I'm certainly she, there's nothing she doesn't feel she can say too. <laughs> so she, she would say, "Cut that! Well, that's sentimental." Well, that was, um, and I sort of go, "Ooh, oh, this is quite moving." I thought it was moving. That's a sentimental crap. So get rid of it. And I go, "Oh, okay." And I, you know, usually I just trust her, um, but yes, we'll have a bit of argy bargy. But there's something wonderful about working with someone for that l- length of time and an understanding that the theatre sh- she makes is the theatre that I I aspire to and um, am really excited by. Both of us love actors and we use actors well. And it's sort of a delight to know that it's, it's, it's dreadful when you go to the theatre and you see really fine actors basically mouthing words and barely moving. And it's not that some some plays can't be talking head plays. They're, you know, if they're really vibrant and about that kind of cerebral and... and um, biting kind of dialogue, then you're not really worried about them in the space. You're just listening to them and it's really very powerful. But generally, actors just sit and and don't use their body, their entire body. And Susie comes from that tradition, so do I, where you kind of delight at being able to move them in the space, you take the space, and it's exciting to work Ooh. with her. The play's called Big Heart. It's going to be on Theatre Works in St Kilda from the 6th of September, running to the 24th of September. As we said, it's directed by Susie D, and it's written by Patricia Cornelius, with whom we've just been speaking. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Three, triple. Ah. You are listening to Breakfast it's with Sarah, Jeff, and Geraldine. Jeff, in the back of the news, you talked about uh, the lady you had the frog in a sandwich. Oh, yeah, salad. Salad. Oh, it's just a salad. Yeah. Oh. In, sandwich. You think you'd see it a bit earlier than? Well, no. that's well. That's why I was laughed a lot when ah. nearly got to the end of the sandwich. I thought it was a salad sandwich. Ah. No, anyway. but she had covered in mayonnaise. I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> Sometimes I find a slug in, you know, by, you buy that pre-packaged 
our salad. Mm. I oh, found yeah. slugs in them before. Have you ever felt inclined to make the slug a bit <laughs> called Lucky? <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't. Uh, I did have a pet frog once, though. Did you? Yes. Uh, we had to, um, the block behind our house, or sort of near our house, just, you know, across the road kind of thing. Yeah. Um, we had this big open paddock. Um, there's all houses on it now, but growing up, it, they started to develop it. Um, but there was a creek down there, so we'd quite often go tadpoling. Oh, fun. Loved oh. it. Yeah. What Except, did, what did you do? What, what did you catch? How did you catch tadpoles? You just take a bucket. Yeah, right. Scoop it in the water. <laughs> oh, that's Come called tadpoling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we just call it tadpoling. Um, and, but they had, but it was, I suppose it was private property. It probably mm. was. Um, because this guy, um, Frank, who owned the land would come by in his truck and he was a really angry old man and he'd come along in his truck and he'd drive just with the window down and through the paddock going, get off my property. <laughs> and we'd, you know, take our buckets and tadpoles and go home. It's like a Huckleberry Finn story. <laughs> yeah, really awesome. uh, And what had happened with your tadpoles? Well... Uh, oh, the ta- you take them home and you just leave them in the bucket and wait for them to become frogs. Really? Did that actually work? No. Okay. <laughs> 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 uh, it never works, does it? Unfortunately right. not. There you go. Um, I can remember that so often. Yeah. My brother and I would... Catch, we'd be down the sea when we were camping or something. We'd catch some fish or something, you know, in a little bucket. Yeah. And we'd go to my parents, can we take them home and make them pets? And I can remember <laughs> my mum and dad say, no, like, they won't like that. They'll get lonely and they'll miss the sea. And we'll say, no, but we'll love them so. <laughs> <laughs> love them so much. That hurts my heart. <laughs> and then you bring them home and the next day they'll be. <laughs> Floating. But, yeah. but when we're at this um, paddock, like I said, they started to develop the land there. So they started putting in um, sewage pipes, like really big sewage pipes. And this is before it was, you know, all uh, – and no sewage was going through them is my point. There was just big empty concrete. Sure, the foundations. Yeah, which is very fun to explore. Oh, yeah. Um, and when they first started, they had them in, they were in like beds of sand on either side and then obviously they pour concrete in over that, but it was just in sand. And I was kind of walking along <clears throat> one of them one day and I had been tadpoling, hadn't had much success, was on my way home and then I just noticed that this sand was bouncing, the little part of the sand was bouncing and I went, oh, my God, that's a frog. Like we'd, it was very rare to see frogs. Like there was heaps of tadpoles and stuff, and you could hear the frogs, but to actually see one was like, oh my wow. goodness! One's made it all the way. Escaped <laughs> <laughs> your bucket. Yeah, yeah. Uh, didn't ex- escape my hands though, so I, I I'm <laughs> caught it, and I was like, oh my god, this is the best I've got. I'm gonna have a pet. I'm gonna have a pet frog, and I, I, I took it home and. And then I went, okay, I've got to set up a nice a nice home for it. So I've got a bucket and I, I like to sit on rocks or get some rocks. Oh, that poor frog. Put, put it in the, in, the, in the bucket and set up, you know, there's a little pond in there and everything. I had it all beautifully, you know, and some grass, things for it to eat. Just had it beautifully set up. And I put it in, in the bucket and went, oh, good night, frog. And then went to bed. Of course, the, it was gone very soon after because I did not put a lid on the bucket. <laughs> I just kind of my hope was that I'd just make it nice enough. Why would you want to get just stay there? Why would you leave? I've got everything I need in this bucket. Bucket home. <laughs>
Oh, that is so good. <laughs> it was just a bucket with a rock in it, really. <laughs> <laughs> Three, triple, ah. Oh. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. Shashi Theroux is a member of the Indian Parliament, a diplomat with a long career at the United Nations, a journalist and the author of no less than 16, count them, 16 fiction and non-fiction books. He's appearing this weekend at the Melbourne Writers' Festival on Friday and Saturday discussing his most recent title, which is called Inglorious Empire, What the British Did to India. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you very much. Good to be with you all. It's great to have you here. Now, this book came out of a speech you gave at Oxford University as part of a debate on the topic Britain owes reparations to her former colonies. Your remarks went massively viral. I think the last time I saw it was like four million views or something. That's just one of the sites. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, uh, your comments hit a nerve. Why, why do you think that was? It surprised me, to be frank, because I, I kind of assumed that everyone knew this, and it turned out that everyone didn't. I think it's partially because there's been some historical amnesia, particularly in the West and particularly in Britain. People have just brushed all this under the carpet over the years. Partly because there's been a lot of gauzy, romanticizing, you know, television soaps kind of stories about the British Empire and how wonderful and elegant and beautiful it all was. And at the same time, there's been, I think, a certain sense of um, uh, revisionism uh, promoted by a lot of very successful and popular uh, historians in the last 10 or 15 years, like Neil Ferguson and Roberts, Lawrence James and so on, who've also tended to sing pins to the glories of empire and essentially elided all the sordid reality of the exploitation, the, the rape, the racism and the, and the cruelties. And, and, and suddenly, um, um, I suppose it was like throwing a bucket of cold water over all of that. I suspect Australian listeners probably know less about Britain's relationship to India than British listeners did. So perhaps we can start with some context. When did Britain conquer India? What form did that conquest take? Well, it was a gradual conquest. The first came to trade and indeed, uh, uh, you know, they were competing in a very, very thriving free trade environment. India was the world's leading exporter of textiles, for example, for over 2,000 years. Going back to the Roman Empire, the debates that Pliny the Elder records of Roman senators complaining about all Roman gold being sent off to India to buy Indian linens and muslins and cottons and so on. So um, the British came hoping to be able to, to do a good business in trade. But the East India Company didn't take long to figure out the trade of the point of a gun was usually more profitable than the other way. Uh, and so uh, they started gradually acquiring territory, uh, initially from an increasingly enfeeb enfeebled Mughal monarch. Um, they, they acquired the rights to, to take over land near the ports, and then from there they kept expanding. Most people would date the British conquest as such as 1757 onwards, when there was a major battle, the Battle of Plassey in which Robert Clive uh, defeated the Nawab of Bengal, um, India was still nominally uh, a unified empire under the Mughals, but uh, de facto, uh, the, the local Nawabs and Maharajas had considerable autonomy because the authority of the emperor had subsided quite a bit by then. And from then onwards, the British spread right across the country. The important point, though, is that when the British came, India was one of the richest countries in the world, accounting for 27% uh, of global GDP in 1700, 23% in 1800. 
And they managed to reduce it over 200 years of exploitation to just over 3% when they left. Uh, you mentioned the British East India Company. It always strikes me as almost like one of those mega corporations that you encounter in a science fiction movie, this private company that's essentially responsible for millions of lives, that you say, at the point of a gun. Perhaps you can give us some idea of the scale of the wealth that was transferred from Britain to India. It was was colossal. It's difficult to to put a a value on it because, of course, the value of money changes every year. But to give you a couple of examples, the, the revenues of the Mughal Emperor in 1700 exceeded those of all the crowned heads of Europe put together. Revenues were 10 times those of, those of Louis XIV in Versailles. So you can imagine that was the kind of wealth that was around. Um, and and um, the British, as they controlled territory, kept raising the taxes. They were very extortionate taxes. Um, we have some really gruesome details in the House of Commons debate in the 1770s. There's a debate impeaching the then Governor General Warren Hastings in which a lot of the, 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 the gruesome tortures that were uh, exacted upon people who wouldn't pay that or couldn't pay their taxes uh, were outlined. The money was not spent as perhaps other extortionate tax uh, claimers would have done in the past. The money wasn't spent in India. It was all shipped off to England. So every year's accounts were meticulously kept. There was a detailed study done over 700 pages by an Englishman in 1901, a man called William Digby, who calculated some colossal sum, over a billion pounds in those days' money over the the course of the, uh, the, the 150 years or so that he'd measured. And, of course, there was further exploitation with India's extraordinary contributions to the First and Second World Wars. I mean, the First World War was essentially fought by Britain on Indian money and, and Indian resources. The equivalent to today's cash of something like £80 billion sterling was spent on the First World War by Indian taxpayers as well as um, Indian contributions. So money was a huge, huge issue, Jeff. But it wasn't just money. There was so much else that, that Britain took. Indeed, the, um, the destruction of what had been the, the thriving textile industry, the, the thriving shipbuilding industry, even steel. I mean, Indian steel was, was um, so highly regarded around the world, the Arabs came and borrowed the technology to make the famous Damascus steel. And when British soldiers killed Indian soldiers at the beginnings of their campaigns, they would dismount and steal the Indian swords because the steel was so much better than anything available in Europe. And they managed to destroy that too. So there was a, a colossal amount of, of, of destruction of industry, of, of, of thriving trade, and its replacement with a dependent colonial relationship where the British extracted resources from India, shipped it off to Britain, and, um, and, and really helped build their own prosperity. The, the Industrial mm. Revolution owed a lot to money coming in from the colonies. Do you think that the view of... Um, uh, British of British people of what happened in India is shifting at all because there's always kind of been this romantic idea that uh, Britain left India with a lot of infrastructure and um, they kind of look back on that time I don't know in a different way to what you're describing exactly I mean the famous example that's often used <laughs> Sarah is is uh, railways I mean, always everyone says, well, we gave you the railways. Well, actually, you didn't, old chap. I mean, what, what the Brits did was to, uh, well, well, first of all, they were quite cynical about their motives for building the railways in India. It was indeed to extract resources from the interior and take it to the ports to ship to England. And secondly, to send troops into the hinterland to quell any potential unrest. So the purposes of the railways were for Britain. Secondly, they actually managed a gigantic colonial scam where they they paid, they guaranteed double the rate of the re, of return on any investment in the Indian railways from England. So the, the English 
poured in money in vast quantities and made profits hand over fist. It was the single most profitable investment they could make uh, in the London Stock Exchange from the 1840s to the 1870s. It was described at the time as public, as private profit at public risk, except the private profit was all British and the public risk was all the Indian taxpayers. Mm. On top of that, they ran the railways with uh, scant regard for the needs of the Indian traveling public or the ordinary Indian. Um, in fact, um, British companies paid the lowest freight rates in the world, whereas the the traveling Indian paid the highest passenger rates in the world. All of this was only reversed after independence. So yes, when the British couldn't take the railways with them when they left, but it wasn't exactly done out of munificence or, or benign charity. Mm. You've landed in the midst of a not dissimilar debate that's happening in Australia about the legacy of British colonialism in this country. One of the ways it's manifesting here is arguments about the statues that have been erected to various colonial figures, often with a history of violence against Indigenous people. How? What, what's your take in, in this in terms of Britain and India? I mean, you describe Winston Churchill, for instance, a great British national hero, as deliberately ordering the diversion of food from starving people during the Bengali famine. Four million people died as a result. Should the Britain, the British people be removing those statues? You know, the situation here is very different from India. I mean, unfortunately, the, the, I would say that the, the, the key difference was that um, in Australia, the British came to stay. Uh, in India, they came to exploit. There's, there's practically no one left uh, who chose to, to stay on after independence. Uh, very, very few did in any case. Um, even 80% of the salaries paid to British civil servants in India were repatriated to England. Uh, the colonization of India was the exploitation of one society and economy for the benefit of another. Whereas in Australia, the British came, settled, immigrated, assimilated and built. And therefore, I think the two experiences are different. I do believe that the wrongs that were done to the Aboriginal people are very, very grave and must be acknowledged. But it's not the same thing as if they'd just come here, um, looted. Uh, by the way, the word loot is an Indian word that the British took into their dictionaries as well as their <laughs> habits. But um, it's not as if they just came to Australia, looted and went away. You see, I mean, they stayed, their descendants are here. Today's Australians are overwhelmingly of, of, of European descent. So I think the debate, the terms of debate are inevitably somewhat different. Uh, you, in the book, you argue for the importance of an apology. Um, you say that reparations aren't really necessarily a practical um, solution. No. Again, in, in Australia, we have had some kind of apology to Indigenous people, specifically about the stolen generations. It doesn't seem to have made very much difference to the appalling way Indigenous people are still treated. Do you think an apology would actually make a difference in the Indian situation? Again, in the Indian case, yes. I think in the in the case of the, the, the white people and the Aboriginal people in Australia, there's, there are different issues, as I mentioned, which you folks will have to work through. And I, I simply don't feel qualified to comment on that. But in the Indian context... I would argue that there is a case. I agree reparations are irrelevant. I, I, I had to speak on that topic at Oxford because that was a topic the Oxford Union had chosen. <laughs> but um, even in that debate, I said, look, a symbolic one pound a year for the next 200 years would be fine because you can't possibly quantify the value of all that the British took and particularly the lives of well, 35 million Indians died totally unnecessary deaths and famines, including the 4.3 million whose deaths will be on Winston Churchill's conscience if he had one. I don't believe he did. Um, the fact is that, that, that this is 
um, shall we say, something that, that you can't really put a, a dollar sign or a pound sterling sign on. And therefore, um, I don't think reparations are the answer. But there is a moral debt that is owed that's far more important than the financial one. And that moral debt, it seems to me, can only be paid through an apology. Now, I know Brits would say, but why should we apologize? None of us did anything to, to the Indians and nobody is alive in India really to, to um, you know, accept that apology since we left 70 years ago. Uh, all of that is true. But, you know, when I see, for example, these annual YouGov polls in which a startling percentage of young Britons say they're proud of the empire and would love to have it back, mm. I think an apology might wake them up and help them realize all the wrongs that were done. I also think that... Um, that teaching colonial history in the schools is so important. We've got a, an astonishing situation where it's possible to do an A-level in history in England and not learn a line of colonial history. Mm. That's got to change too. You've got a situation where they have museums dotting London, the Imperial War Museum, but there's no museum to colonialism. Mm. There are statues in the heart of town to the animals that served in the world wars. There isn't a single statue to the Indian soldiers. Uh, 1.3 million in the First World War, 1.7 million in the Second World war fought for the british or for the allies the public are, are essentially unaware they make i mean they're praising this from dunkirk and there's absolutely no glimpse of any of the indians who actually helped assist the evacuation in dunkirk uh, actually in history so there's this complete sort of whitewashing of the colonial experience and i think an apology ideally by a member of the royal family since everything was done in the name of the crown would go a long way towards cleansing this moral debt Mm. The book is Inglorious Empire, What the British Did to India. Sashi Thoreau is speaking on Friday and Saturday at the Melbourne Writers' Festival. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R. It's time for Feature Creatures. And this week we're joined once again by Simon Hinckley from Museums Victoria. How are you going, Simon? Good, thank you. It's great to have you back. What insect have you brought for us today? I'm going to do a good news story uh, on the Lord Howe Island stick insect, which is one that's been brought back from the edge of extinction. And there is a link in um, to the fire ants that you were talking about earlier. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Yes, when I I was listening to them, I'm thinking, oh, I can make a link. So um, (laughs) the Lord Howe Island stick insect is uh, found on Lord Howe Island, not surprisingly, which is... um, some hundreds of kilometres off New South Wales in the to the east of Australia. And um, being an island, it had developed a really unique endemic fauna, including this stick insect. So the a good-sized female is about 15 centimetres long. They're My sometimes God. called land lobsters, so you get an idea of the sort of size and the chunkiness of them. So, yeah, 15 centimetres for a female and about 12 for a male. Um, that's at the, the higher end. They're a bit smaller, but um, they can be a bit smaller. And the males have enlarged hind legs with a spine on each side that they use for com- competing for a female or probably also for defence. You can imagine if you're a bird and you get a spine through the roof of your mouth, it's probably not, not the best way to go. So um, they're wingless as well. Being an island, you don't need to fly to the next island because it's hundreds of kilometres generally. So they're, they're wingless and they're also communal. So the early entomologists reported finding like 68 in a tree hollow. So, you know, if you're oh. a fan of them, oh, great. They hang out. They do, they hang out. They all clump together and mm. um, they just do their thing. Do, so, they, do they interact? Do they chat or they interact or do they just hang out? They just seem to hang out. They okay. just like they just like to clump. Yeah. Ah, so which, to clump. which is um <laughs> 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 
<laughs> so they were happily doing their thing and it all went wrong in 1918 when a ship ran aground um, on a reef near Lord Howe Island and that was brought ashore for, for repairs and either in the cargo or just incidentally, the good old rash made its way onto the island. Oh. So there were no predatory mammals on the island at this point and there were being an island fauna, it's like that everything had sort of developed that thing of, hey, we can just sit on the ground and, and clump and we don't have to do anything and the rats just went, this is heaven. So they knocked out about five species of bird and they wiped out the Lord Howe Island oh stick insects. Oh, my God. They'll eat anything. They'll eat the stick insects. They'll eat birds' eggs. They'll eat the birds. If the birds, a number of species of bird, won't get off the eggs and the rats just go, well, I'll you'll do you. as well, I'll eat you. Oh. So they're pretty horrendous things. Um, and so the stick insect was declared extinct and happily there's this um, volcanic, what do they call it? I think it's a volcanic shaft about 20 kilometres off Lord Howe that's just like this sheer 500 metre high um, sort of small islet cliff thing. And they kept finding, well, a couple of times they found some dead Lord Howe Island stick insects there and they're going, how long dead are these? And they finally found in 2001 um, a small colony under a a handful of Malaluca plants. And and so they've gone, wow. So it was this sort of big moment um, in the invertebrate world where you get this sort of iconic big species back from the dead. And, of course, then you're faced with the decision, do you leave them in situ on this tiny precarious rock where you've literally got a tiny group of food plants uh, and they're just hanging on there? And the fire ants thing is one of the listed um, threats to this species. So if the uh, fire ant was to get there, it's already in southeast Queensland, uh, that would wipe them out in a heartbeat. So, oh. And the fire ant is something that... I- is the fire ant carnivorous? Is that the word? Do they... They will eat anything. anything. So they cost the US economy $7 billion a year and they call it, they've caused multiple deaths. So, um, what? Yeah, they basically, like you were saying before, if you stand on a colony, there's that release of the, the attack Fair. pheromone thing, which oh. also European wasps will do. You might notice if you disturb a colony, they all attack. They release a pheromone that gets everyone going. It's like you, swarm, sting all that sort of thing. Oh, so wow. they're a really bad thing um, and the government is trying to spend money to stop them becoming established because if they do, the idea of having a Barbie in the backyard is... Over. We'll be, we'll be living indoors. Yeah. Jeez. So the fire ants are horrendous. So um, also for the Lord Howe Island stick insect, if they were to get there. So they made the decision to take two couples off Ball's Pyramid and captive breed, uh, breed them. The couple in Sydney died and Adam oh. and Eve, which I, I quite like, were brought to Melbourne oh. and... Um, <laughs> Eve doesn't actually need Eve doesn't need Adam because the females can reproduce without a male, but you obviously have identical genetics being passed so on if you're not clones, uh, wouldn't they? Yeah, wow. yeah. So uh, mating is better because you increase the genetic diversity. So they brought a couple back, and she nearly uh, died. She had I think five days where she wasn't feeding, she wasn't moving, she wasn't responding to touch, and the staff at Melbourne Zoo did an amazing job. They made some. A mix of like malaleuca leaves, and I think it was glucose syrup and calcium powder or something, and with a little eyedropper, put it on her mouth parts <gasps> and stuff, and gave her little chest massages and little. No, they didn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was imagining you know, those. You totally yeah. would have believed you had you said that. <laughs> um, the first part was true. <laughs> I was imagining like little Barbie arms, yeah. you know, having But they um they brought her back and she laid two hundred and forty eight eggs. So wow, oh, to go. she did well. Yeah. It, it was good. Um, and so from that, Melbourne Zoo has set up colonies in other places around the world in case if you get like a, a disease go through Melbourne Zoo. So Melbourne Museum has a colony. We've got. I think 10 males, 7 females and some nymphs and eggs waiting to hatch. And there's also colonies in, I think it's San Diego and London. Um, and so what I guess the decision then is, so they're surviving in captivity, but 
how do you get them back on Lord Howe Island? Because the rats are still there. So they're looking at doing a, an island-wide program of baiting where they can hopefully wipe out the rats, which is still causing a threatening process for some of the birds that are remaining and that sort of thing. So it's that idea of you brought it back, but ideally not just for captivity. So it's that question of how to get it back into the wild. Is that like... How, is that a hard thing to do? Is it going to be? Is it realistic that they'll get it back into the wild? It is a really hard thing to do because even if they, even if the baiting program goes ahead and kills every rat, you've still got planes landing on Lord Howe Island. You've still got boats going, so you'd have to have really, really tough sort of quarantine program to to stop them re-establishing. But they have done it on smaller islands for um, for threatened species, um, like the wetters in New Zealand. They've they've made some of the small islands there rat free and reintroduced them. So it's doable. Um, but there's also there's the ongoing need to to do it and there's also the will like how much do people really want to spend the money and the time and the effort to to do this for it wouldn't just be the stick insect it would also be birds and stuff like that but one of the things that i really liked was people going well how did they get from lord howe to ball's pyramid which is 20 k's and apparently have never been linked we believe geologically there's always been water there and they don't fly so some of the, mm. the theories are um either it's was on vegetation that's floated across, um, not quite as good as the fire ant clump that goes down <laughs> the floodwaters. Um, or the fishermen apparently in the early days would break off the hind legs and use them to bait hooks because the fishing oh. around Ball's Pyramid is really good. So they might have taken some live ones across that have managed to get onto the island. My favourite one is they have found on Ball's Pyramid birds' nests with Lord Howe Island stick insects in them. So it's when being a stick goes wrong for you. Oh, my God. But it actually takes you and goes nesting material and sort of puts you into and the nest. Wow. Um, so that's that's the one that I like, but, you know, who knows how it actually happened. You, you oh. said they called them Lord land lobsters or? Yeah, they were, they were sort of called. Um, that's not a great name. Can, yeah. can you eat them? Like if you, I mean, I know they're endangered. That's so a great, probably. that is a really good question. I don't see why not. I mean, there is. Um, well, if a rat can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, if Would you there were, be much meat on them? They've got a good-sized abdomen, especially the females. Um, oh. Yeah. So, and I mean, obviously those... You need a cricket. Yeah. That's, yeah. I was going to say there's now... Um, 15 centimetres long. It'd be yeah. like a it's red, well, it Like a right. lobster. And especially, like, if you find the tree hollow with 68 in them, then it's a, it's a oh, banquet. It's so, yeah. a banquet, yeah. yeah. How much meat do you reckon's in that pen? That's probably how much meat you'll get out of it. It'd be like that thing where you crack the crab... Oh, no. Sort of, I, I shouldn't be... No, oh. probably not. No, they're, they're in danger. They're horrible. They're really... They're not <laughs> tasty. Don't, don't eat them. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thanks, Simon Hinckley. That was fascinating as always. We've been talking to Simon Hinckley from Museums Victoria. Thanks so much for coming. And you had thank something you. to promote. Oh, yes, oh, yes. Thank you. Yes. yes. Um, <laughs> thank you, Sarah. <laughs> That's all right. There's an event on at the museum uh, this Friday night called Nocturnal. Um, so the museum's open from 6 to 11. There's bands playing and I'll be there till 8.30 with some Lord Howe Island dead stick insects if you want to come ask questions or have a look at them. <gasps> I really want to come them. to one of those events. Yeah. Maybe I'll come this week. There are fees, so do check the website. Cool. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR.